Welcome to Outside In, a one-half-hour interview and conversation between me, Roger Kahn, and one of the many interesting people visiting the Crested Butte-Gunnison Valley area this summer to share their knowledge, insights, wisdom, and opinions with people in our community. Our guest today is Sarah Brito. She's co-founder and president of the Good Food Media Network, a nonprofit organization that produces and publishes the Good Food 100 Restaurants. She's a 20-year veteran of the food and uh, advertising, digital media, and uh, she's worked with the Fortune 100 companies, including American Express, the New York Times, AOL, and has a very successful record of leading people and change to make big ideas happen. Uh, she's co-created and launched the Slow Food Snail of Approval Program, a designation given to restaurants, bars, and food and beverage artisans and contribute to the quality and authenticity and sustainability of the food supply of New York City. Her work has been featured on the cover of the New York Times Magazine in 2015. She was invited by the United States Department of State uh, to speak at the American Chef Rally at Expo Milano in Milan, Italy. In 2017, she served on the steering committee of and participated in the inaugural Why Food Matters program at the Conference on World Affairs at the University of Colorado Boulder. Sarah's roots in food began while she was growing up in a small, historic farming community in western New York. Sarah Brito, welcome to Outside In. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Great to be here. Listen, let's, let's begin with the basics. Why does food matter? Why does food policy matter? Why do we have to be concerned about food policy? Well, I think that food matters because food is the most important issue of our lifetime. Uh, food is what connects us all. And the issues surrounding food are connected to almost every other issue um, that matters to society today. And so if we start to address the root issues in food, I think that we can solve many of the other issues uh, facing us uh, and our planet. So you're saying it's more important than terrorism, it's more important than climate change, it's more important than social injustice. I think that it's connected to all of those. So just to start with the How first so? one that you mentioned, terrorism, I think the UN, if you, if you just look at that organization, uh, the UN views food security as critical to peace building and peacekeeping efforts around the world. Uh, and that food, because we as humans all need it to survive, when it's threatened, uh, when there are famines, it creates uh, insecurity that creates the foundation for political discord, uh, for extremism. Uh, for wars. Um, and so I think that food is at the root of many of those other issues that you just named. I've always thought that too, actually. And, and yet today, more and more, it seems like religious ideology is at the root of all of this stuff. How did the two interplay? Hmm. Uh, well, to some, and especially a lot of people in my world, food is a religion. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that's one way you could look at it. All right. So if, if, if you're advocating uh, a healthier food policy, which presumably you are, let, let's look at 
current food policy. What's wrong with it? I think if we look at current food policy and our current food system, uh, it's based on an industrial model that is driven by subsidies. And when you look at those subsidies are fueling our monocultures, which are degrading our soil and um, reducing our biodiversity and putting our food supply at risk. So I think that one of the key things that's wrong with our current food policy is our subsidy model and that we're subsidizing those things that are contributing to many other ills, not just in the food system, but in our health. Uh, with obesity and diet-related diseases, you can look back on those and say that they have connections to our subsidy uh, food policies. How's that? Um, well, our subsidies are driving uh, products like corn and soybean uh, and the junk food industry and the fast food industry wouldn't exist without uh, corn uh, and corn syrup uh, fillers that are fueling those foods, uh, which are now being attributed to these diet-related diseases, you know, namely obesity is, uh, or sorry, diabetes as uh, one of the main ones. And so I think we have to look at if we want better food, then if we want good food, that we have to look at changing how we subsidize what, and ask ourselves, why aren't we subsidizing farmers that and other food producers, ranchers, fishermen, that are producing good food? Why are we subsidizing bad food? Why are we? I think some people would say follow the money uh, and the way that money is influencing uh, big ag, big food companies uh, are influencing our public policy um, and how can we take big money out of that equation. I mean, we see this also in our political campaigns of how big money is influencing uh, decisions. Sarah Brito, I'm a little confused. Um, big Agriculture presumably feeds the world, and I, my understanding has been historically that that's the rationale for all these subsidies. Am I incorrect about that? Well, I'm not an expert uh, on that, but from what I have read and what many other people who are experts on that um, have researched is that there is currently enough food to feed the world today, um, and that in many ways, that is a myth that we have been told. And when we're told myths repeatedly, we tend to believe them. Um, but that it's truly been small uh, farmers that have been feeding the world uh, historically and, and presently, um, and that we need to continue to empower them uh, to feed the world. So I, I think that there are many myths in our food system um, about what it's going to take to feed a growing population. Um, but so much of our food policy and challenges in getting food to the people who really need it um, have more to do with politics than actual supply of good food. So when we see on television or in a film clip, uh, YouTube, anywhere, uh, airlifts of wheat, for example, being dropped in uh, Somalia, let's say. Uh, is that not feeding the world with surplus, with our surpluses? 
Um, I think that there's always going to be these situations where there are going to be emergency food needs, um, and we're going to want to have aid. But I think uh, an aid strategy is different than uh, a sustainable food um, policy strategy that's going to feed people on an ongoing basis. But of course, there, there will always be a role for emergency aid in various situations. You alluded to it a minute ago, but I, I want to probe a little bit. What does agribusiness, which is the subsidy of large agricultural industry, what does that do that's bad for our society and for the world? Well, I think one of the main things is what it's doing to our topsoil, um, and depleting our topsoil will lead to depleting our ability to grow and feed ourselves in the future. And so I think many farmers, whether they're organic or simply practicing sustainable farming methods, will say that what they're actually doing is not necessarily growing food, even though, of course, food is a byproduct of what they're doing. But when you talk to those types of farmers that are really caring for the land, is they'll tell you that their role as a farmer is to feed the soil and to cultivate the soil. And that by cultivating the soil, we get the benefit of food as a byproduct of healthy soil. So I think that soil and our care in nurturing and being stewards of the land is one of the, if not the most important thing that we can do about the, f the future of food and that agribusiness with monocultures, um, chemicals, um, they're not being stewards of the land um, and caring for uh, the ability of that soil to produce in future years. It's a, it's a very short-sighted, uh, short-term uh, production, short-term profit uh, model. And an extraction model that is based on extracting the most you can for as long as you can at the highest profit versus thinking about it as uh, cultivating the longest, most productive uh, soil over the long haul. Let me turn the question around for a second. What, what is it that agribusiness could do recognizing that they feed a lot of people through agribusiness. They feed most of us through agribusiness. What is it that they could be doing that would still allow them to feed a lot of people, but do it better? How, how, do we, how can we improve agribusiness? I think it's a great question, and you see this with the recent acquisitions of food companies that are being acquired by big agribusiness, uh, good food companies, uh, like a Nyman Ranch uh, being acquired by a Purdue. Um, and I think what the big agribusinesses can do is provide uh, scale and infrastructure to good food companies that need a cash infusion and need infrastructure in order to expand and scale their good food practices. Um, so I think that we big... Big is not necessarily bad, um, but we need big to we need big to listen uh, to what good food producers are doing, 
and to not simply just repeat the methods that have gotten them to be big. Let, let's say that you were queen of the land and you had the ability to institute public policy that would improve food. At the federal level, I mean food production, mm -hmm. at the federal level, what policies would you initiate? Well, immediately I would go back to subsidies. Um, and of course, you know, I, I think we're living, your question implies that we're living in this magic wand world. So I realize that some of what I'm about to say is a bit idealistic and definitely uh, in the waving the wand, but I would shut off the subsidies. You don't have ideals. You don't know how to get there. <laughs> I would shut off the subsidies uh, of the monocultures and uh, um, given our depletion and of farmers. And what would you substitute? And, and I would subsidize a small and medium-sized farms uh, at the regional level um, that are interested in growing and help those small and medium-sized farms stay alive and grow uh, so that they can bring back more regional place-based uh, agriculture. I think in addition to that, uh, one of the other areas that we sometimes forget about, which is related to agriculture and food policy, is our subsidies that are um, in the farm bill to aid people who need help in the form of food stamps and SNAP benefits and ensure that people without the means uh, to buy good food on their own are given the appropriate um, benefits to be able to buy fresh and healthy good food at farmers markets uh, and other places uh, like the programs that are being in initiated by a nonprofit called Wholesome Wave. Does, does that mean that you're suggesting subsidizing the consumer, the low-income, the moderate-income consumer, rather than the producer? Uh, no, I think I'm suggesting both, um, that we need to subsidize the good producers and we need to help the low-income the low um, workers who are not living on a livable wage um, get access to good food so that good food is not something that's only available to the 1%. I mean, we, we are living in, and in our current trajectory, we're heading toward a world that is a bifurcated eating system where there is going to be, and in many cases there is, one food system for the 1%, and another food system for the bottom 1%, not even the 90%, 99%. Um, there's probably a third system for the middle uh, population. Um, but that doesn't feel fair, that, there, that good food, fresh, healthy, nutritious food uh, that's going to enable children to learn sh is not something that should only be available uh, and accessible and affordable to the 1%. Well, that leads to the whole question of impoverished communities, and particularly in urban areas, impoverished communities. What is being done, what can be done in those communities um, to, to improve their diets and improve what's available to them? I'm, well, I'm thinking about food, food oasis and things of that nature. Sure. Um, yeah, food deserts and, um, and involving those food deserts into food oasis, uh, oases. Um, you know, I, I really 
in talking about this, echo the words of Mark Bittman, um, who wrote, you know, a few years back uh, when he was still a columnist with the New York Times, that these issues start with the issues of poverty. And if we want to uh, address the issues of food, deserts, and access to fresh, healthy food, we really have to address the issues of poverty. And a recent data point that I read, uh, which just was appalling to me, is that five out of the lowest paying jobs, uh, 10 lowest paying jobs in the US are in food. 50% of the lowest paying jobs are in food. And more than half of women, African-Americans, and Latinos work in those less than $15 an hour jobs. So we have to start by addressing a livable wage. Um, Because if you're not making a livable wage, um, how are you going to have access to good, healthy food? That's a good question. (laughs) Um, I want to take it from where we are now to a slightly different level. Sarah Brito, food expert, where do you see schools, hospitals, universities, other mass distributors of food uh, that function within working class and poor areas, changing their policies how does a local government change its policy? How does a state government change its policy to enable more of us to eat well? It's a great question. And uh, although school food is not my expertise, I, I would point to a shining example that's happening in the Boulder Valley School District, where I live in Boulder, Colorado and being led by Ann Cooper, who is uh, sometimes known uh, as the renegade lunch lady um, and is the head of the uh, dining services, uh, our food service director for the Boulder Valley School District. And I think that part of this starts simply with leadership. One person in a community, in this case, Ann Cooper, standing up and demanding um, that her school district and the Boulder community not just take for granted that this is the way school food has to be. And slowly over time, um, making those changes within you know what is uh, quite a highly regulated environment. So I think that um, changing school food is critical. Uh, changing institutional food is critical because institutions, cultural institutions, civil institutions like schools are where we learn how to live. It's where children's taste buds develop um, and it's where we learn how to be human in society. And the current way those systems are working are not developing um, a generation of consumers who is going to want to buy good food. If you grow up on junk food and you don't know what a fresh, in-season, ripe tomato tastes like, then how are you going to be a customer for a good restaurant, uh, a good grocery store, a good you know, food business um, when you start to have a job and, and make a living for yourself? And so a good food has to start in schools and it has to start with children. 
in in the schools, presumably, a lot of what you just said is applicable to other major institutions like hospitals, like universities and colleges. There is another very interesting thing that I'm aware of that happened maybe five years ago in New York City. Mayor Bloomberg imposed a sugar tax on, on soda. And if I'm not correct, I think Boulder just last week did something very similar they to did. that, charging an extra two cents per ounce for sugar drinks. And, and that's even higher rate of taxation than what, what uh, Mayor Bloomberg had done. That's done by executive order, and in Boulder's case, I think, by uh, council legislation. What other kinds of things can local governments do by legislation, by executive order of a mayor, let's say, or a governor, to improve the quality of food that we consume? I think one of the areas, and again, uh, just pointing to Boulder, where I live, because it's something I'm familiar with, is land use um, and how we look at land use um, to feed our communities. Um, and looking at real estate development. And in Boulder, we have a, a fairly well-known open space uh, policy where open space, which is owned by the city, is then leased to farmers, and farmers can grow food uh, for a certain period of time on that land. And so I think you know, looking at our land, not just as uh, land similar to what we were talking about with agribusinesses that can be ex an extractive approach to land use, which is how can we like monetize this and get the most from it, but how can we look at our land um, to feed our sustainable community? Um, so I think uh, that's a case where there's so much momentum happening with urban agriculture, um, and, you know, rethinking our policies about uh, land use and how it's contributing or not contributing to the growing and feeding of our communities. Very interesting. I, I might note that um, many years ago, I worked with the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union in some organizing and political work. And uh, it seems like when it came down to the state legislature and things they wanted versus what agribusiness wanted, they always lost. And they were representing the regional family farmer that you're talking about. Makes me wonder, the same issue is still alive. That's what you're talking about, and I'm talking about many years ago. What can be done to politically organize and influence legislators at a state level to say nothing of a federal level, which is a different area altogether now? Hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, finding those little success stories um, and bringing those to state level uh, politicians to build the case and build the momentum um, is, is one way of looking at it. But I think you know, I know we're here talking about public policy, but I always like to go back to people's individual actions and how individual actions combined with other individual actions in a community can together send signals to those state politicians. And so I think that money talks, um, and the more we can build 
economic stories that tell our elected officials, whether they're at the local level or the state level, that with our economic power, this is the type of world, the type of state, the type of community we want to build in, that we have to look at how we are using our dollars personally um, to send signals. Um, because if what we're saying is we want good food, but the dollars and the economic stories that our politicians are looking at are telling a different story, um, it's very hard for them to take action. What kind of economic power does the food industry have? Well, I think here I'm talking about the economic power of eaters um, and the fact that I believe that every time we eat, which you know we could say is three times a day, but given that we've moved, moved to a snacking culture, uh, you know, it's probably more like five or six times a day, we're voting with our forks and we're voting with our dollars and we're voting with our credit cards. And, you know, just like some people are reevaluating their 401ks or their investments and making sure that they're consistent with their values, I think it would be interesting if people took a look at their weekly spend and, and really ask themselves, you know, I say I have these beliefs and values about food, but when I look at my weekly spend, when I look at my monthly credit card bill, does my spend actually reflect? Is it an honest reflection of those beliefs and values? All of us go to a supermarket. Mm -hmm. In most major supermarkets today, outside the mountain towns, the... King Supers, the City Markets, the Safeways, the Albertsons, they have an organic food section and the regular non-organic food section. When people pay 69 cents a pound for bananas instead of 59 cents a pound for bananas because they're organic, is there a difference for them as consumers between the organic and the non-organic? And if so, what is it? I think that um, people's views about organic are very personal. Um, so, you know, my personal views are, if I was that consumer, I would buy the organic um, because I don't want chemicals uh, in my food. Do you know you're and not getting them when you buy or quote-unquote organic in the supermarket? No, not entirely. You're getting organic approved. I don't want to say pesticides, but you're getting uh, organic approved ways of dealing with uh, different issues in, gr in growing food. So it's, I mean, the, the ideal uh, would be that I know the banana producer. I'm buying directly from that producer. I can, it's an eye-to-eye -eye, uh, conversation just like you and I are having right now. And I can look in that producer's eyes and feel like we have a personal relationship about the food. But in the absence of that, um, if I'm going to buy a fruit that doesn't grow natively here in Colorado, um, then these types of standards are proxies for trust. And so they're not perfect proxies for trust, um, but they are minimum thresholds uh, and proxies for trust. And I think that we as eaters need them. It's one of the reasons why I created the Good Food 100 restaurants, to give people a proxy for trust when they're eating in restaurants. I think that we need them um, because we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a practical world. And so how do we as average 
people living our daily lives navigate what is a very complex and confusing food system uh, in a way that um, allows us to get in and out of the grocery store in, you know, 30 minutes or, you know, 45 minutes. Exactly. Listen, we only have about a minute, minute and a half left. Tell me what you are doing with the 100 and what that's all about and, and what you ex- hope it will accomplish. Sure. In, in 90 seconds. Um, what we're trying to do with the Good Food 100 Restaurants, which is an annual survey list and rating system, is change the way people view and value restaurants and to redefine the conversation around food to be about more than just taste. Because we truly believe that to be truly good food, good, it has to be good for every link in the food chain. Uh, we can't just focus on taste. Well, I hope that it's also about good taste. I was just going to say, but we like delicious too. <laughs> That's right. Sarah Brito, thank you so much for sharing your insight, your wisdom, and um, your commitment to what you're doing and helping us eat better and live healthier. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In here on KBUT. Each Saturday this summer, we feature a block of locally produced public affairs programming from noon until 1 p.m. You can hear episodes of The West Elk Word and Outside In anytime at kbut.org under the Programs tab. Stay tuned. Up next is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. 